poetry is the silence and speech between a wet, struggling root of a flower and a sunlit blossom of that flower. Poetry is a phantom script telling how rainbows are made and why they go away. Carl Sandburg. This is The Phantom Script, a poetry reading podcast. Today we're going to make good on curated readings of contemporary poetry. And we have a guest with us today, Dr. Lawrence Musgrove. Lawrence Musgrove is a writer and professor of creative writing, currently teaching at the Natalie Zahn Ryan Department of English and Modern Languages at Angelo State University in Texas. He has published three volumes of his own poetry, another forthcoming in 2023. He's served as editor for literary journals and anthologies, and is an author of academic articles. He curates and publishes the online journal Texas Poetry Assignment, which we'll have a conversation about shortly. Lawrence, thank you for joining us on The Phantom Script. Thank you, Vince, for this opportunity to talk about poetry and poetry in Texas, especially. And we're glad to have you here. Uh, Certainly, I'd like to talk about the ongoing Texas poetry assignment. But first, um, I believe that integrating drawing and writing has become a part of your teaching, as well as a book you've published entitled Handmade Thinking. And I know you, um, you illustrate with comics. Can you speak to this practice of visual thinking and responding to literature visually, especially how it might enhance a student's understanding and engagement with literature and language. You bet. Thanks. Early on in my teaching, I recognized that I was in competition for my students' attention. The assignments I gave them, especially in reading literature, they didn't really have a vocabulary to talk about their reading, but I also recognize that many of the students weren't reading in the first place before coming to class. I was looking for a way to increase their engagement in a really a different way, maybe a more visual and physical way. I began to do some research on what others were doing related to having students draw their responses to the poems and stories, novels that they were reading. So I came upon a book by Dan Rome, R-O-A-M, uh, and this book is titled The Back of the Napkin. Dan Rome in this book argues that taking a pencil or pen in hand and drawing one's ideas was a very effective way of understanding and problem solving. He also discovered it was a very effective way to communicate one's ideas to another. And this was really in the context of of business marketing and business problem solving. But I found that the ideas that he presented could be applied to the classroom. He argues that there are really seven basic pictures that one needs to learn how to draw and improvise upon. And those relate to the basic questions that journalists and others ask when interrogating a problem or writing a story. 
That's, that's the who, what, when, where, how, and why. And so he developed pictures to correspond to each of those. And those pictures became a sort of heuristic that allows us, my students, to draw what they're seeing, or what they're experiencing. So, for example, the who question would just be a portrait. Uh, the what question would be an object or an image that they see. When, to ask the question when, you would draw a timeline. Uh, where, uh, you would draw a map. I began to give my students that vocabulary. For each of the reading assignments, I asked them to draw a picture, and then I asked them to record a, a citation or a line from a poem that is somehow connected to that, that picture. So when they came to class, each of them had an image. Each of them had this sort of picture. And they were always different. There was no requirement that everyone do a particular sort of drawing or answer a particular sort of question. But once they brought those into class, I knew that they had already become engaged. They shared those pictures with one another. And they gained perspective on the story or poem or novel that they hadn't had before. And they also learned uh, how others had used those images differently for the same poem or the same story. So it, it provided this sort of physical, visual engagement uh, in order for students just to be prepared to talk about that, that poem or story. So it was, it's, it's been effective. It's been very effective for me. I've taught it to others. Uh, I've held workshops on this. But it's really, uh, I've always found a very engaging sort of practice. I, I know this is for students and, and right. to uh, increase engagement. Is this anything you've done in your own practice? I've done it in a couple of ways. Uh, when I teach and I present material, I always illustrate what I'm teaching. So I, whether that's a Venn diagram or, again, a, a map or a process, I always include illustrations in my work, and I've found it very helpful in my own creative practice. Every chapbook or book of poetry that I've ever published or had published, I've, I've had it illustrated. I want those images to also provide another sort of experience. Some of these have been uh, illustrated by my daughter, who's an artist and illustrator in Brooklyn. In my teaching, to support my lectures, to support even discussion. In class, I'll go to the board and do a little bit of drawing to capture the discussion that's going on in class. Also in my poetry, I think I usually start with a visual image, and that's not uncommon, I'm sure. The visual is, is, is pretty important to me in my work. Hey, it worked for uh, William Blake. Definitely. <laughs> Although I think he really came at it from the other side. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah, yeah. I know that during the height of the pandemic and thereafter, you've hosted freely available curated poetry sites. Uh, two of these that I know of are Tejas Covida, I should say Tejas Covido, and the Texas Poetry Assignment. Can you tell our listeners why you manifested these projects, maybe when you did, and what they have meant to you and the community of writers who have participated. Sure. Teos Covido was the first of these projects that I initiated just right 
after the pandemic got underway. So it was March 13th, I think, was when the first poem appeared. I had just come from a writer's conference. It was our own writer's conference at Angelo State. And I wanted to keep those relationships going that uh, I made there and the relationships also between those people I met. So I sent out a general call to poets and writers that I knew in Texas, and I asked them to submit poetry, essays, stories, images uh, that in some way came to them or was their response to an experience they were having. But the real motivation was to combat uh, the sense of isolation that immediately set in for all of us during the lockdown. You know, writers are already in this self-enforced isolation, right? We have to do that to do our work. Many of us go into writers' retreats or we have a special place in our homes where we know we can be alone and not be interrupted and write. So there's this self-enforced isolation. And then the pandemic came, so that really turned up that sense of isolation. And I think also we all suffer from a kind of cultural isolation. You know, there's such division politically, economically, socially in our culture. And that also, through those divisions, through those unseemingly unhealable dualities, creates a sense of anxiety that leads to isolation. So part of the project overall was to generate relationships, uh, get people connected. And I think that was really what motivated me most. I mean, there was this selfish sort of motivation of me, myself, not wanting to lose the friendships or feel isolated, be silenced, right? So that's, that was part of it too. But the, the sense that I had made these friendships, knew these people would also be out there experiencing this isolation. I wanted to connect people uh, that I knew. And most of those people at the time, really, that meant uh, a great deal to me were those friendships I made in the Texas writing community. And I suspect that this persuades writers to stay very connected to occasions of importance in culture, society, as you have to enlist some emotional energy to write in the poetic form at any time, but especially when you're responding to big and difficult events in the world, and those didn't end with the pandemic. But it's not all monumental seriousness, is it? These themes and poetry which emerges out of them can be playful, don't you think? Yes, I think poetry has to be playful. It's musical. It takes a sense of rearrangement and play even to make it possible, sort of letting go. I think poetry is uh, dependent upon play, and play, particularly uh, non-commercialized play, play that's not transactional, is countercultural in a society where everything seems to be commodified or has to be commodified or, or, or liked or, or turned into content. Uh, so playful, yes. Some of the, some of the uh, work that some of the work that we've received has has been satire, comic. So I so yes, I think play is a, a very important part of the creative process. One thing that I do want to talk about here is I know you've worked to really shine a light on hunger relief 
with these projects. Feeding Texas figures prominently with the Texas Poetry Assignment Project. And this is an organization whose mission is to fight food insecurity in a number of different ways, uh, particularly among Texans. They're part of the Feeding America Network and the wider mission of helping our human families across the country. What would you say fuses the practice of writing and reading poetry within communities, responding to the challenge of physical hunger in the world? How did these ideas come together as one of the organizing principle uh, for your projects? Well, I needed something larger than the individual work of poets to be presented. And this, this gets me back, I, I think, to this notion of isolation. I've been to a lot of writing conferences uh, and workshops, and so much energy is focused on individual poets and their work. There's not a lot of discussion that takes place, though some. They're socializing and so forth. But, I, you know, I always got the sense, even from my own readings, that sometimes it leaned toward this, this, this sense that, that we were just a bunch of individual performers having the chance to read our work. And though it was sharing and though there were people in the audience and very little sort of shared sense of community beyond the fact that we all showed up at this place to read and to listen existed. And that's not a criticism, but I felt like I wanted to have a community that focused also on a shared purpose, and that was, that was Feeding Texas, something larger to bind us and to inspire a sense of community and shared purpose. And, and Feeding Texas was already an organization that I was familiar with and I thought would be a good fit. Well, in uh, late, late last year, in November, to be precise, of 2022, a selection of the poems from the first year of the Texas Poetry Assignment Project were published in an anthology. That's Lone Star Poetry, Championing Texas Verse Community and Hunger Relief. Maybe can you tell our listeners a little about this volume and your partner in its publication? Sure, yeah. We had uh, been chugging right along with T Texas Poetry Assignment for about a year, and one of the uh, frequent contributors, Milton Jordan, suggested to me that we might assemble some of the best of the first year and create an anthology as another way to raise funds for Feeding Texas. I had already done quite a bit of editing, obviously, in that first year of the project, made selections. I also felt really good about this idea. It was easy to say yes. It also offered the opportunity to build community within the group of poets who had been contributing over that period of time as well. So I put out another call for editors who would read through the poems and make selections and then submit those. I was lucky enough to find seven people to be contributing co-editors. You also, Vince, was one, one of those. And so we had seven contributing co-editors, and Milton also became a senior contributing editor. So they selected the poems, 
Milton and I made some final decisions, and uh, we ended up with 90 poems by 42 different poets. And that project came together. We, we put together the manuscript, and Milton also contacted Tony Burnett, who runs Callisto Gaia Press, and he agreed uh, to publish the anthology. So this was pretty quick work. We did this work in the spring, uh, and over the summer, turned it, I think we got it to uh, Tony Burnett in July and published by November. So it was a great project. Proceeds from the purchase of that anthology go to Feeding Texas. And we also have a number of book release events happening in, in, uh, in February. One in Austin at the Vintage uh, Bookshop. I believe that's on the 23rd, February. And then I'll be hosting an event at the People's Poetry Festival in Corpus on February 25th to also celebrate this book. Each of these events will be attended by poets who were published in the anthology, and they'll read. And so uh, hope to raise some money during those events as well for Feeding Texas, too. I don't know if we'll do another anthology down the road. We, perhaps we, we might. But uh, that was a great, great experience and another way to build friendship and community between the contributors. But I'd like to turn now to, um, to your work. I'm going I'm to read right now from a statement from Lamar University Press from a blurb for your book, Local Bird, citing how you speak in a consistently simple, direct, generous, and tender style. If you were writing your own artist statement, what might you say about what you endeavor to achieve with language, uh, particularly during those moments where you have a reader's attention? I think I, I really want uh, a relationship with my readers. I want to present a friendship. I want them to be able to identify my voice and see in that voice uh, a companion who's sort of on the same road. I know that that limits what my readership is. I realize that not, not all readers will, will identify with my voice, my poems. But those who do, I want them to be able to read the poem, have some sort of insight. Maybe they, they nod their head. Maybe they say that, yeah, that's true. But I also want them to see, see that play that we talked about earlier, too. I want them to perhaps chuckle, see something that's funny. But mostly, I think what I've learned over time is that uh, part of the pleasure that I have in my own writing is knowing that it's possible that others might experience pleasure uh, in the reading as well. So I want it to really reflect ultimately who I am. I, I think that that's what I would want readers to experience. Some sense of, of who I am, who my experience, what my experience is, but also in language that is fairly transparent, that they'll easily be able to engage and hopefully identify. That is, they'll see a friend. Well, here's an opportunity to connect with listeners. Before we go, 
I wonder if you might read from two or three of your own selected poems. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I'd really like to do that. This poem I wanted to read first is from my book, Local Bird, that you mentioned. One of the one of the things that I enjoy doing quite a bit is teaching, especially teaching creative writing. I'm teaching a poetry writing course right now. So many students come with misconceptions about creativity, about poetry, about poetry writing. So this poem was really written in response to some frustrations that I was experiencing with students who were pretty fearful about writing. So one of the things I like to do, need to do, uh, is to, to create situations where I give students confidence. So this, this poem was really a, a part of that effort. It's called Poetry Workshop. I'm trying to tell you, and maybe you weren't listening, or maybe you weren't hearing me with what you were too timid to give. But the writing of your poem isn't the job your brain bosses around, much less your hand. The writing of your poem is that race toward getting it down on the page, that you finish it before the tears won't let you see the words and the salt where they go. That's what I mean. It's riding the fast bareback to see who can hold on the longest. The horse is bigger than you are, and so is the poem. And that's the life you want, the waves you feel in your bed after a day in the water, the horse under you, the poem you wouldn't let go. So this poem is from my uh, second book called uh, The Blue Bonnet Sutras. In this book, I'm imagining a friendship with the Buddha, open access to his wisdom that I can have this friendship, that I can ask him questions. And this book reflected much of my study in Buddhism during that period. This poem is called Trout Sutra, and there's a word in here, Shimpa, Shimpa uh, is the Buddhist word or Sanskrit for hook. So Trout Sutra. I was meditating on Shinpa today because of how often I'm hooked into the habits of fearful response when I encounter those people and daily responsibilities that intensify my path of suffering. I was telling the Buddha how I was looking for some helpful teaching or image that would awaken me to these automatic failures. The hook, said the Buddha, may be a worn metaphor to some, but consider the skill of the catch and joy of the release of the angler. How he must feel when cradling the trout and then freeing it to swim away. Every hook will be barbless when you can catch yourself being caught. This final poem is going to be from my uh, new collection that's coming out this year, also with Lamar University Literary Press. 
And this is another teaching poem. Back to this really idea of this competition I have, teachers have, for their students' attention. And a practice that I I do in my classes is I begin each day, each class period, I ask them to draw a little bit just so that they begin to move their focus from whatever's happening before class to the classroom itself. And then we do a little bit of focusing exercise, just a little brief meditation, them helping them be present. So this is, uh, this is a poem about that, and it's called Allegiance. When I start class with a period of sitting meditation and quiet, I often ask my students to put a hand over their hearts so they can feel their chests rising and falling with breath. Their bodies begin to slow so their minds know where to go. And with eyes closed, I go back to my third grade classroom with the other boys and girls, all standing hands on hearts behind our teacher at her desk with liberty and justice for all. Words we wear out like the knees in our jeans, the tips of shoelaces, braids, undone, chewing gum. Our teacher, too, tattered a bit, class after class of a smart Alex and do-gooders and scaredy-cats, not so different from those here who sit with me and pledge allegiance to the only hearts we got. Thank you, Lawrence Musgrove, for your generous participation in today's episode and the lovely readings. Our guests can learn more about your publications by visiting your website at lawrencemusgrove.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E-M-U-S-G-R-O-V-E.com. And I will uh, certainly put up the other uh, information on our websites, on Facebook, and at the end in the credits. Thank you again. Thank you, Vince. Appreciate the opportunity. Be sure to visit the site, The Texas Poetry Assignment, to read from the growing volume of curated verse by contemporary poets with a connection to Texas. Find it at texaspoetryassignment.org. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Lone Star Poetry, championing Texas verse, community, and hunger relief, visit the publisher's site at callistogayapress.org. That's K-A-L-L-I-S-T-O-G-A-I-A press.org and navigate to the title. Proceeds from the book's sales will assist Feeding Texas. Thank you for listening, and come back soon.